pray together. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all honor and praise. You are the one who created all things apart from you. Nothing came into being that has come into being. You are the one who redeemed a people for yourself from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. You are the one who will redeem creation itself and reverse the curse that has been on this fallen world and make all things new again. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will dwell with God in our presence, and in his presence. And there will be fullness of joy. So Lord, we thank you for your plan. Thank you for enveloping us in that plan, including us in this redemption that you bought us at such a great price, freed us from our captivity to sin and Satan, renewing us day by day. Lord, we just pray you'd work in us and among us we want to taste more of your grace in our lives, more of your power working in our hearts, see more of you working great things that we sang about, answering prayers, changing lives, changing homes, changing relationships. Lord, be at work. It'd be obvious that it's you that is working beyond what we could ask or think. I pray that that would happen this morning as we open your word, that you know what every heart needs to hear this morning, and I thank you that your Holy Spirit can take your word and um, just zero in on each of us to what we need to grasp. I pray also for anyone who's here today that's still in darkness and not in light, or that you'd set them free, who the Son sets free is free indeed. I pray that uh, you would be pleased to honor your grace in saving uh, a lost person today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, a man came to my office named John. He wanted to meet to discuss funeral arrangements for his wife, Sharon, who had just died of leukemia in her 50s. John had been told, if you have enough faith, Sharon will be healed. And he said, I guess I'm still struggling with why God allowed this. Was it because I didn't have enough faith? Was God mad at me? Was it because I didn't go to my mother-in-law's funeral a couple months ago? Was that it? And so here's a man who is not only experiencing tremendous grief over losing his own wife, but is also trying to deal with the guilt that somehow it might be his fault that she passed. So what would you say to John? Is that how God works? Well, our text for today talks about the relationship between suffering 
and sin and helps us avoid jumping to wrong conclusions. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Job chapter 2 as we continue our study in this Old Testament book. Job chapter 2. After Job had lost all of his possessions and had lost all ten of his children and then lost his own health, three of his friends come to visit him. So Job chapter 2 verse 11 says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads and toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him for they saw that his pain was very great. So these friends model three things that are helpful when we're trying to comfort those who are suffering. First, they came in person to be with him. 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6 says, Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast or the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So God is the one who comforts the downcast. He can do that all by himself. He doesn't have to use people, but he often uses means, and in this case, he used a real-life person named Titus coming in person to be with Paul. And just don't underestimate the importance of being with people in their suffering. Second, they felt and expressed empathy for Job's pain. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So we rejoice with the Woodalls, their baby Zipporahs here this morning. What a joy. We rejoice with that. But we weep with those who are weeping. We don't scold them. We don't think less of them. We enter into their feelings and weep with them. And they didn't say much, at least not yet. Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us that there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. Now, if they had just stopped there, the term Job's comforter would be a positive thing. But now, 4,000 years later, it means, quote, one who, like Job's friends, professes to comfort, but actually increases someone's wretchedness. And that's, we don't want to be that, right? You know, we hear about someone suffering a loss of some kind, and we don't want to make them feel worse. <laughs> we want to somehow make them feel better, and, and these friends made him more miserable. So what happened? What did these friends say to Job that proved to be so unhelpful? They never encouraged Job to curse God, even though that's what his own wife had suggested. They never denied that God is absolutely sovereign over all things, like some in our own day are willing to do. 
The problem was that they jumped to some wrong conclusions about the relationship between sin and suffering. So last Sunday in chapter 3, we heard Job curse the day of his birth and wish that he could die. And what takes place from chapters 4 to 31, so two-thirds of this whole book, is a series of speeches between Job and his three friends. So his three friends heard chapter 3, this outburst of anger, and now they're going to address that. So the first cycle from chapter 4 to 14 is Eliphaz speaks and Job replies. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. Second cycle repeats the same pattern in chapters 15 through 21. And then in the last cycle, Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad only has six verses to say. Zophar has nothing more to say. And Job replies with a very long speech. So let's look at a sampling of what each of Job's friends have to say about why Job is suffering as much as he is. So go to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and if you have strengthened weak hands, your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. In other words, you reap what you sow. Just simple as that. Eliphaz is convinced that Job must have some, something very bad to be suffering so badly. Job is obviously suffering as the consequence of his sin. Now remember Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. What a man reaps, he will sow. Or excuse me, what he sows, he will reap. But does that apply to Job here? And Job, in his response, basically says, it doesn't always work that way, at least in this life. And I did not do anything to deserve this kind of suffering. So then let's go to chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, your end will increase greatly. So Bildad basically says, if you and your children were innocent... That would make God unjust. And since that is impossible, 
it must be then that your children sinned and that's why they died when the house fell on them and you must have sinned and that's why you're suffering so much. And then let's go to Zophar in chapter 11. Verse 1, chapter 11. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boasts silence men and shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, My teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. So Zophar says, you say you're righteous, Job, but if God could tell us the whole story, he would reveal what a big sinner you really are. You're actually suffering less than you deserve. He's already forgotten some of your iniquity. That's how, why you're only suffering as much as you are. And Job comes back with, God knows that I'm innocent. I have done nothing that would warrant all of this suffering. So to summarize, the worldview of Job's friend is, you get what you deserve and you deserve what you get. Bad things happen because you've done something bad. God rewards the righteous. He punishes the unrighteous. It's all about cause and effect. If you are suffering, it must be a consequence of sin. And that way of thinking is still around. Let me just share three examples of that mindset. Billy Graham had to cancel two nights of speaking in a certain city because he got sick. And a local pastor stated very publicly that God was disciplining Graham for associating with the wrong people. The next week, that same pastor fell down some steps and broke his leg. His take was that Satan was opposing their ministry. Now, did it at least cross your mind to think it kind of served him right? Maybe you're, you know, too holy for that. Or Rollin Johnson is a dear older saint I met. Uh, he lives over by Des Moines. His daughter and son-in-law had served for a while as missionaries overseas, but they ended up returning to the States. Their four-year-old son was hit by a car right in front of Rollin's house and died from the injuries. And the grieving dad was convinced God is punishing us because we left the mission field. And a sister from our own church family shared a sad story about her cousin whose baby was born with some physical disabilities. And one of the relatives explained that the reason that happened was because the cousin had left the church that she grew up in. So what should we think about what Job's friends said or what people continue to say about the relationship between suffering and sin. Do bad things happen to us directly because we have done something bad? Well, let's start with what the book of Job tells us. Go back to the very first verse of Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. 
there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Verse 8 of chapter 1. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Chapter 2, verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a man blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And then at the end of the book, chapter 42, verse 7. Job 42, verse 7. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. So Bildad and Zophar along with Eliphaz, but not Elihu. We'll spend a separate Sunday or two on Elihu, another friend, against you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So your theology of suffering is always the direct result of sin was not speaking truly about me. You were wrong to say it that categorically. It is true sometimes, and we'll talk about that more later, but not always. And you were wrong to apply that, what you sow, you reap to Job's situation. So we are specifically told four times in the book of Job itself, Job is not suffering because of some sin in his life. He's not sinless. There are some things he's going to need to repent of before the book is over. But the suffering he's experiencing was not because God was punishing him for sin. Here are three other texts that show us that suffering is not necessarily connected to sin. Go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. That would be so incredibly sad. Don't you think the parents would have asked, why did this happen to our son? And don't you think as that child grew up, he would be asking, why did this happen to me? Why can't I see like everyone else? And others wondered about it too, including Jesus' disciples. So look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? Do you hear the echo of Job's friends there? They are assuming that something bad, like being born blind, must have happened because someone did something bad. So tell us, Jesus, was it prenatal sin or parental sin? What is prenatal sin? What, would you, what is that? It's got to be one or the other. So who is the guilty party in this blindness, Jesus? Jesus. 
Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Those aren't the only two options. Those aren't the only possible explanations for what is happening here. You are operating on false assumptions. God has other purposes in mind than only punishing sin. And so he says in the rest of verse 3, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had a design in this child who is now an adult being born blind. Remember we saw that in Exodus. God is the one who ultimately causes blindness and deafness and muteness and all other physical situations. Ultimately God claims that for himself. He had a purpose. He had all those years of parents wondering why and that man wondering why. And it was all going to culminate in that the works of God might be displayed in him that day in John 9. With years of not knowing why. And years of wondering, was it our sin? Was it his sin? Whose sin? And Jesus said, it wasn't about sin. It was never about sin. God had a big purpose for his glory to display his power and his mercy in me healing this man born blind. Another example, Luke 13. Luke 13. Verse 1. Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So this would be comparable to Governor Reynolds ordering the Iowa National Guard to come into our church service and attack while we're observing the Lord's Supper. And that when it was all over, the carpet was stained with grape juice and the blood of believers. You couldn't tell which was which. Horrible. And Jesus asked them a question after they tell him, did you, did you hear about this, Jesus? Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this? So why did Jesus ask that question? Because he knows there are people supposing that. Suppose means to hold an opinion, to believe, or to think probable. So a tragic event happened. A bunch of Jewish worshipers are slaughtered during a worship service by the government. And these people asking Jesus about it say it's probably because the victims were greater sinners than their neighbors. How does Jesus respond to that assumption that this human tragedy is a direct indication of human sinfulness? Verse 3, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. To repent is to change your mind and your heart that results in a change of direction and change life. So... It's not about them being greater sinners. It's a wake-up call to repent before it's too late for you. So R.C. Sproul had a sermon called The Misplaced Locusts 
of amazement. Locus is another word for place. Jesus says, are you amazed that a few Galileans were killed by Pilate? What you ought to be amazed at is that all of you haven't been killed and that you will all be killed someday if you don't repent. Jesus gives another example that would have been getting people to suppose that extraordinary tragedy must be the result of extraordinary sin. So verse 4, or do you suppose, there it is again, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Sproul goes on to say, in effect, Jesus was saying, you people are asking the wrong question. You should be asking me, why didn't that tower fall on my head? So here's John Piper elaborating on that. Jesus was saying, no, their sin was not extraordinarily horrible. It was ordinarily horrible, just like yours. And if you don't repent, you too will experience a horrible end he says that we are just as sinful as they are and should get ready to die like they did. What Jesus teaches then is that all of us are extremely sinful. We are so sinful that calamities and disasters should not shock us as though something unwarranted were coming upon innocent human beings. There are no innocent human beings. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And what should amaze us in our sin is not that some are taken in calamity, but that we are spared and given another day to repent. The really amazing thing in this universe is not that guilty sinners perish, but that God is slow to anger that you and I can sit here this morning and have one more chance to repent. We just don't usually think of it that way, do we? You read about something that horrible that happens, this earthquake over in Syria. What is it, 30,000 plus now? Were those greater sinners than Americans? Don't suppose that, Jesus says. Or any other tragedy you read about or hear about, don't jump to a conclusion, oh, they must be a greater sinner than me. Something bad happened to them, didn't happen to me, so I must be pretty good and they must be pretty bad. And Jesus says, that is this the wrong way to think. We're all sinners. We all need to repent. If we don't, the end will be bad for all of us. One more example would be Acts 28. We looked at this in Sunday school just this morning. Acts 28. Let me read verses 3 through 6. Paul has just been shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Picking it up in verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives or the islanders saw the creature hanging from his hand, so still just there, hanging on it. They began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, 
Justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. And it's almost humorous, isn't it? Look at the assumptions these people are making. Oh, undoubtedly, Paul's a murderer. No doubt about it, he is a bad person. And so even though he somehow managed to survive a shipwreck, he's still going to get what he deserves. He did something bad, something bad, like a snake bite's going to take him out. And it serves him right. And then they wait. They're waiting for it. They're like, let's see. Let's see when he's going to drop over. When is he going to swell up? This is kind of morbid. Oh, wait. He's not dying like he's supposed to. He must be a god. Like, do you see how fickle people are? But what a, what a bunch of wrong assumptions to jump to. Oh, he's a murderer. He's getting punished for sin. And he made it through one, but he's going to get it this time. No. God was not punishing Paul for any sin when he had a snake bite him on Malta. So it should be clear from Four passages in Job as well as John 9, Luke 13, and Acts 28 that suffering is not necessarily the result of sin. There is not always a direct connection between how much pain we experience in this life and how much we have sinned. But don't jump to the conclusion that there is never a connection between sin and suffering. Suffering and death came into our world because of sin. Go to Romans 5. Romans 5. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the reason there's death in this world is because of sin. And then Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious Longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was not subject, for the sub, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him, God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. We sang, is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. But in the meantime, there's suffering in this world, and that suffering was introduced through sin and the curse that was on sin in a fallen world. So there is going to be a connection. And if sin is not taken care of in this life, it results in everlasting suffering in the life to come. 
everlasting suffering. It never ends. So if God is convicting you, acknowledge, I don't deserve anything good from God in this world or the next. The only thing I deserve is death, being separated from God now and forever. And so Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what I deserve. That's what I've earned. Death, separation from God. But the rest of the verse says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. So eternal life is a relationship with God that begins now and lasts forever, and it is a free gift. It's not something we can earn by anything we try to do, and it, this gift is found in Christ Jesus. Jesus did not deserve to suffer. He was completely sinless. But he suffered in place of sinners like us who fully deserve to suffer because of our sin. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Verse 24. He himself bore our, sin, our sins in his body on the cross. He suffered for you. It's our sins on his body on the cross. There's this substitution happening. He's suffering in place of us. And he rose again from the dead since it was impossible for him to be held by its power, as Peter says in Acts 2. So forgiveness of sins and eternal life are offered to you this morning as a free gift if you trust in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you that you have provided the one and only remedy for our sin. We all deserve to perish and suffer forever for our rebellion against you. And in your sheer grace and mercy and love, you provided Christ to suffer in our place, take away our sin, restore our relationship with you that we can now look forward to eternity in heaven forever. So we thank you for this marvelous plan of redemption. And I pray again for anyone who's not embraced that yet, who is still in danger of perishing in their sin and being lost forever. I pray that you would cause them to see Christ as the Savior that they need. It's in his name we pray. Amen.